0: Welcome to TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we continue our five-part educational series on environmental law and commercial real estate by removing your drywall and examining the nooks and crannies of your floorboards. That's right. Today, we're talking about asbestos and mold. It's unsafe It's unsightly, and on today's show, my guest Jill Kovas will break down how responsible you are for removing it from your property. For those just tuning into our series, Jill is a Dallas-based environmental lawyer and TREK member who has helped resolve hundreds of environmental matters, including due diligence issues, risk minimization and liability transfer, vapor intrusion, and more. Her clients have included Aldi, Weitzman, Dart, Digital Realty Trust, Lone Star Investment Advisors, and many others. It's important to note that this podcast series is meant to educate and entertain only. The content in these episodes does not in any way represent legal advice from either Jill or the Real Estate Council. Make sure you subscribe to TrekCast wherever you get your podcasts so you can get all of our episodes right to your mobile device. Make sure you follow Trek on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay updated on everything we're doing in DFW and beyond. Now, here's Jill Codvis on asbestos and mold right here on TrekCast. Jill, let's start with everyone's favorite contaminant and health hazard, asbestos. If you turn on the television or open up a newspaper, which I know is a very antiquated phrase... You've more than likely heard about the dangers of asbestos, particularly as it is discovered within aging buildings, but I'm not sure people really know what it is or what it was once used for. Um, can you give us an idea of what asbestos is and, and why it's bad? Because it wasn't always, the, the view on it wasn't always this way. So tell us a bit more about about asbestos.
1: That's That's true. It wasn't always that way. Um, So, asbestos is actually a naturally occurring fiber, and most people don't know that. They think it's a synthetic fiber. Uh, But it was identified as a great product for, and it was used in numerous uh, building materials and vehicle products, because it was a very strong material, and it had the ability to resist heat and corrosion. Uh, So that was a really valuable tool for building materials and and, uh, automotive products. Um, and it was used uh, in so many products until uh, it's, it was identified as being a potential health issue. Uh, but, but before I uh, go into that, let me tell you the type of products that it was used in and what you would, might look for in a building. Um, the thermal system insulation, uh, floor tile and floor mastic, what's underneath the floor tile. Uh, plaster. All of us might have been at least at once inside an old building where they had the popcorn look on it, and in most cases that was spray-on asbestos-containing material. Um, It was used in cement, in putties and in caulk, ceiling tiles, spray-on coatings, as I mentioned, uh, industrial pipe wrapping, heat-resistant textiles, and any other building product that they wanted to make sure could withstand heat and sometimes fire. Uh, the, uh, the place that people in, in the real estate, uh, profession that have not dealt with asbestos might be the most surprised to hear about is the caulking issue because it was used as caulk around windows and around everything else that we caulk in, a, in a building. Um, but, uh, before the 1980s, we started to, uh, infer that there were, uh, health effects from asbestos, both occupational and non-occupational, meaning that, uh, you may encounter them because you're an asbestos contractor or assessor, or you may encounter them because you're uh, you were in the asbestos mines. That's occupational and non-occupational. Uh, Maybe someone that's just working in a in an office environment uh, in a building where there is asbestos-containing building material, and it's become uh, airborne and uh, and may affect them. Uh, and the health effects from asbestos are. Uh, were determined to be quite serious, uh, particularly when it affects the lungs. Uh, And and they are uh, even more problematic because you cannot see asbestos fibers. Uh, They're not visible to the human eye. And so a party working in a building or uh, working with asbestos uh, would not know there were asbestos fibers in the air that could impact uh, their their health. Um, Because of this, the uh, federal and state governments began uh, uh, outlawing, basically, uh, the use of and the manufacture of asbestos, uh, and they began regulating uh, our, um, how we would uh, determine whether or not there was an asbestos building, asbestos in a building material, um, how we would remediate it through encapsulation or otherwise, how we would remove it, uh, and how we would uh, test for it in the air as well.
0: I suppose the primary way that you discover that an old building has asbestos is to go and look for it. Um, And to do that, you need to get an asbestos survey taken. Um, Is that survey uh, required for for renovations and, and demolitions now?
1: Yes, it is. And I've had a number of clients be surprised by that as well. Uh, The federal uh, statute called the National Emission Standards for Hazardous Air Pollutants, it's actually a regulation at 40 CFR, section 61.140 and ongoing, um, uh, requires that uh, you determine whether or not you have asbestos in a building uh, or a relevant area of a building before you perform any uh, renovation or demolition. some people say, well, uh, I don't know if I need that. I'm not going to get it. But this regulation is also um, uh, affects municipalities and other parties providing permits. And they're, they're not allowed to issue a permit. A municipality or other governmental entity is not allowed to issue a permit unless they have determined that you have uh, yourself uh, determined whether or not there is asbestos in any of the materials that you'll be encountering. In your renovation or that will be involved in the demolition project. Uh, This this requirement is generally not uh, uh, a process where the municipality the city might ask you for a copy of the survey but on their permit application in most cases it should say have you done an asbestos survey you know do you have asbestos in the building. Um, So you'd want to keep that asbestos uh, survey handy particularly if you don't you've identified that there is no asbestos containing building material in the area where you're doing the renovation or uh, the building that's being demolished. Uh, the the uh, Texas uh, regulates asbestos under the uh, Texas Asbestos Health Protection Act uh, and under the regulations uh, that implement that act. Now the act itself is really the primary part of the act is that uh, it requires that all persons in any way dealing with asbestos whether they are an assessor inspector a a remover of asbestos if they transport asbestos if they train people on asbestos requirements if they abate or test uh, then they have to be licensed in the state of texas Um, the rules themselves at 25 texas administrative code 295 point 31 and ongoing um, uh, apply to all buildings uh, That are subject to public occupancy. So sometimes people read this and they think that's not me I'm not a government building it, It's not talking about whether or not your government owned build or our operated building It means if the public could in any way be entering your building office buildings, for instance um, then uh, you are subject to this statute Uh, and these regulations and it applies to all persons that are disturbing, removing, encapsulating and closing any asbestos within any of these public buildings as that term uh, is defined. Um, And it applies whether or not the removal is intentional or unintentional. an important aspect of this uh, for those in renovation uh, of a building or those involving demolition is that there's a prior notice required to the state of any renovation or any uh, demolition and that's just a ten day notice uh, but if the if you give them the notice and then your date changes as gets delayed you have to give them a new notice each time or modify your your prior notice um, the uh, asbestos protection rules don't apply to Residential properties—they're exempt, or to very small, limited apartment buildings.
0: So, if you discover that the building you own or maintain contains asbestos, I mean, what what's your course of action? Are you required to remove it?
1: No. Just because you have asbestos-containing building materials in your building structure does not require removal, uh, but. Uh, if those materials become damaged and airborne, or if they're friable and become damaged, the friable ones are the ones that can be crushed and more easily become airborne, uh, then you are required to take action to remediate it by encapsulation or other methods, or to remove it uh, and to remove the hazard. Um, and the, uh, the Texas as- asbestos health protection rules that we discussed uh, will govern how that is done and who does it. Um, there is a requirement that two different parties are involved in that process. The first one is the assessor that does the survey that tells you whether or not you have asbestos. And they, uh, help determine what is the work process and procedure that the contractor will then use. Then you have a separate company, a separate entity that actually does the encapsulation or removal or remediation of that asbestos. And that was done by this state and most states in order to avoid a conflict of interest because initially there were, there were a lot of con- contractors performing both roles and telling you you had to do things when you really might not have had to do them. Um, a couple key points uh, on this topic before we conclude on it is that during your renovation of a building, if you're installing new wallboard, uh, new sheetrock, new joint compounds, etc., um, you're required to maintain on-site material data safety sheets On every new new product going into that building Um, and then you have to present them to an asbestos inspector from the state if they come onto the property and if they don't you need to maintain those records in your file along with any asbestos surveys or other asbestos records and under the state requirements you do need to maintain all asbestos records surveys remediation records demolition records all relating to those building materials in your file And if you sell the property uh, by that regulation, you're required to uh, transfer those documents over to the new purchaser of that property. So you want to maintain them all and transfer them uh, upon sale. Now, the last asbestos point um, that is not quite moot yet, but still uh, has some validity, is that there is no federal or state regulation that requires that you put an operation and maintenance plan in place for asbestos. Over the years, consultants, that was one of the things they would recommend in their phase one reports. Oh, you may have asbestos, you should uh, let us draft an O&M plan, which they would charge five or $10,000 for. Um, the only time you're required to have an O&M plan in place is if you've had an audit by the state and the state has determined that there are issues and they require that you have an audit. As you have an O&M plan in place. Uh, My recommendation is just with any other uh, corporate or building procedure is that if you're not going to follow that plan to the T, then it's best not to have it in place if it's not legally required of you. If you're going to follow it and, and it is a valuable tool for you and your staff and the building maintenance, then absolutely have it in place. But as any in-house counsel will tell you, it's it's, and I spent five years doing that, so I know for sure, uh, anytime you have a document, a procedure, a policy in place, it isn't followed, it's much worse than not having had one at all.
0: Now on to what I guess we can consider a, a distant cousin to asbestos for the sake of conversation, and that's mold. Uh, how does mold develop, and how can it be prevented? Um,
1: well, mold is an interesting thing. Um, Mold has been around forever and uh, particularly those of us that uh, may have spent time in the northeast know it much more substantially because basements are more common up there. Uh, The mold is naturally occurring and it needs several things to exist. Uh, It needs an organic substance as food, it needs the moisture, it needs some form of water or moisture, Um, It needs, and it needs warmth, uh, along with oxygen, of course. Um, These kinds of things can grow on just about anything, but, of course, they like organic products the most, and those are the the products that will deteriorate if mold is not uh, remediated. Um, An important point about mold is that uh, it's impossible to eliminate all mold and mold spores uh, in the indoor environment. It's just impossible. And, it's, and and in many times, the mold spores and the mold counts are higher outside than they are on in the interior of a building. Uh, but the real key to controlling mold uh, and preventing it is to making sure that you don't have any moisture, no water intrusion into the building. Um, you know, your building's tightly sealed, uh, your roof isn't leaking, your air, your HVAC system is not um, excreting uh, a lot of water, there's not a condensation Um Uh, Your landscaping isn't uh, directed to the foundation of the building where there may be issues with the integrity of the foundation, et cetera. So um, maintenance folks are real familiar with this, uh, but that doesn't mean they're always being given the budget uh, to handle these things. So a lot of times we see with deferred maintenance issue, uh, maintenance on a building that mold issues will be um, much more prevalent. There are no standards for how clean is clean with mold or how much you can have or how little you have to have in the air. This is extremely important for people to understand. There is no threshold limit value for mold, whether it's uh, mold spores in the air or mold that is collected on, on a wall or on some other organic surface. Um, but There are a lot of guidance documents um, and guidance criteria on this that will be followed by people in the industry. And they will use varying standards. Um, So be aware that, for instance, the EPA has a publication that's called Mold Remediation in Schools and Commercial Buildings. That was something they developed in 2008. And OSHA has two different uh, standards that uh, they are guidance documents. One is called A Brief Guide to Mold in the Workplace, and they developed that as late as 2010, and that one would certainly be accessed by any employees that are in a building that you may own or that you may lease uh, that has mold uh, situation. Uh, The second OSHA publication is Preventing Mold-Related Problems in the Indoor Workplace and a Guide for Building Owners, Managers, and Occupants. And again, uh, those are documents that you may want to be familiar with as a property owner or as maintenance staff uh, uh, or as a purchaser of property, particularly because uh, they'll provide you with standards and you'll have knowledge of what may be reviewed by other parties interested in looking at potential mold uh, in your building.
0: I know you said that, um, you know, mold can't be eliminated altogether, but if mold is discovered, um, is are you in a situation where you can remove it yourself or or do you need to hire a professional to come and do it? Um, what are some of the safety concerns there?
1: Uh, well, there is uh, a Texas, uh, there are a set of Texas mold rules, the Texas mold assessment and remediation rules that actually govern the answer to your question. Uh, the, um, if mold is remediated, so there's not a requirement that you remediate mold, but if you remediate it, uh, and if it's greater than 25 contiguous scare, square feet, then you must use a licensed uh, mold assessor and a licensed mold remediation contractor. Uh, and then those folks are going to be using the specific uh, standards set forth in this uh, mold rules, in these mold rules. Um, and all companies that are uh, performing mold assessment and remediation in the state of Texas are required to be uh, licensed by the state by the state licensing agency. Um, And these rules are going to provide to these uh, experts now, if you will, uh, minimum work requirements and procedures for how do you assess mold, how do you determine if there's uh, uh, a mold issue, how do you remediate it, and then what do you do after you've remediated it to determine if you've addressed the issue. Um, Just like with asbestos, Uh, They've bifurcated the obligation and the responsibilities with mold. So one entity, one company has to be the assessor. Do we have a mold issue? A second company has to be the company that does the mold remediation. Um, So I thought it maybe in response to your question, it might be helpful to just briefly uh, go into how that process works. Um, So when you have a mold uh, cleanup that you believe is necessary, um, the licensed mold assessment company will come in and they'll prepare a mold. Uh, well, they are do the testing first. They've determined that there is a mold issue. Then they prepare a mold uh, remediation protocol. And this is the protocol that's going to state, this is how much mold we have. This is exactly where we believe it's located. Uh, these are the methods that we want you to use in cleaning up the mold. And these are the clearance criteria for once the mold is cleaned up, how do we determine uh, that the air has been cleared, uh, so that the air is now clean, if you will? Um, on this issue, uh, I would like to provide a caution to our listeners that you can negotiate what that mold, that clearance criteria is, with the with the mold assessor, or at a minimum, you need to be aware of what that particular mold assessor believes the criteria should be. Because if you recall a moment ago, I said to you, there is no specific. Legally required criteria that must be met and there are a variety of standards out there some more conservative some less conservative Um, So you may want to uh, be more fully uh, uh, Educated on what those various standards are and what would apply uh, what you'd like to apply to your building if you're engaging a mold Assessor to prepare a mold remediation protocol Um, once that protocol is prepared Then the mold remediation contractor comes in, and they must follow not only that protocol, but they also have to follow a mold remediation plan that they then prepare that talks about how they're going to go about uh, cleaning the mold off the walls or the other building materials or uh, reducing the concentrations in the indoor air. Um, When they're done with their work, they then have to have the assessor come back in they do additional testing of the mold, whether it be white tests on the on the building materials or collecting indoor air samples, and they determine whether or not that remediation has actually reduced or eliminated the mold problem to the extent uh, stated in the criteria in that, in the clearance criteria that were established by that assessor. Uh, and if it doesn't meet those criteria, then they'll be doing another round of, of remediation.
0: The Texas Department of Insurance has something called a Certificate of Mold Damage Remediation. What is that? How is it beneficial? Um, Why would somebody get um, a Certificate of Mold Damage Remediation?
1: Well, that's an interesting part of the Texas Mold Rules. Um, It actually requires that the assessor, the mold assessor and the mold remediation contractor, um, provide um, within 10 days of the project conclusion, provide to the property owner within 10 days of the project conclusion, that certificate of mold remediation, uh, mold damage remediation. And this is, it's required to be signed by both of those uh, entities. Um, And it it is supposed to cover two issues. And there's a form on the state website uh, for this document. Um, And in it, the mold assessor has to state that the mold contamination was removed um, and that either the source of moisture, the water intrusion, uh, was addressed or it wasn't. So that's the underlying cause language you'll see in that form. Um, the problem is, and what we've been seeing particularly with a couple companies that do mold assessment around the city, this is again going back to why it's important to qualify your environmental consultant of any, or a contractor of any type, is that uh, the the assessors don't like signing this because they believe they're taking on added liability. And they read that language as requiring them to state that there's no underlying source anymore, that the, the remediation is concluded and you will not have to ever do remediation again. Well, that's not what it says. It's that you have to state either the, the moisture uh, or the water intrusion uh, issue has been resolved or it has not been. But their position is, I'm not going to sign that because if I sign that document, then I might become liable to some third party that gets sick afterward, based on uh, based on the remediation that might not have been done fully. Um, unfortunately, uh, I have seen at least in one case where the state agency, and it used to be the Texas Department of State Health Services, that addressed uh, mold in the state, but now uh, it's the uh, Texas Department of Licensing Authority. Uh, But in that one case where we went to the state, they were not overly anxious to assist us in obtaining a signature by the the assessor, and the client did not want to spend the funds to prove up the fact that the water intrusion issue had been uh, resolved. Uh, But if you can get one of those certificates, and if you ensure that the consultant that you engage as an assessor understands his obligation under this portion of the mold rules and will give you a certificate, Upon completion of the um, of the uh, remediation and if and any other criteria you may agree to with with them, then these certificates are valuable, and that's because uh, the certificate more or less releases a person for damages that could be related to that mold remediation or the mold that was remediated prior to issuance of the certificate. Uh, so that's an important document to have, particularly if you've done a significant mold, uh, remediation on your property. Um, the other requirement of the rules are if you have one of those certificates and it was issued within five years of your transferring title to the property, then you have to disclose that, uh, to the subsequent purchasers. So that's one of the rare, uh, statutory required closures in real estate transactions involving commercial property in the state of Texas. Um, now another point, um, that is not necessarily regulatory, but, uh, uh, I think practical is whether or not you should allow mold testing on your property if you're trying to sell it or whether or not you need to do mold testing on a property if you're buying it. And I always tell the seller absolutely true in an as is transaction, but even otherwise Um, If there's minor mold obvious in a building, that's always going to be the case. I would not allow uh, any mold testing in the building. And if my sale contract states as is and they're not entitled to do any phase two testing, I would detail what I mean by that phase two testing. No indoor air testing, no vapor intrusion testing, no soil and gas, no soil and groundwater testing, and no soil gas testing. I would be very explicit in my contract. If you're the purchaser, unless it's a really significant and obvious issue, you're probably either getting the, the the property for a low purchase price, unless it's in a great location. So you realize you're going to have to address it anyway, uh, or um, or you know it, it, that may be the only case where you may want to try to to insist on on doing the uh, mold testing if it's an, an obviously impacted property uh, with significant mold issues.
0: That's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank Jill Codvis for breaking down the liability issues and remediation processes for asbestos and mold. Subscribe to TrekCast on your preferred podcast platform to listen to each of the episodes in our Environmental Law 101 series, and follow Trek on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Once again, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.